0: Oborn and Heller on cricket brought to you by the Chiswick calendar
1: hello it's Peter Oborn here in a balmy Wiltshire hello
2: it's Richard Heller here in a rather gloomy and blustery southeast
1: London it's going to get better because the weather's coming from the West Richard oh. Um. We have today a very distinguished guest, schoolmaster, cricketer, formula, racing driver, coach, wise man, great recorder of the game of cricket. I'd known Lingard Golding for nearly 40 years and I first played against him in the uh, mid-1980s. He was keeping wicket for the home team at Mount Juliet in Ireland um, and it was the most terrifying experience, really, batting I've ever had because I had Godfrey Graham, a very fine Irish leg spinner, bowling at me and Lingard Goulding behind the stumps. Uh, well, I'd never met either of them before. And you knew that if you played a forward shot, you went, uh, you'd be stumped. And if you played back, the vicious leg spin of, of Godfrey Graham would trap you in front. So not in exactly a pleasurable memory, but it was a, an education
0: And I think you've educated very many people in guard building. Good morning from County Meath. I don't know who that gentleman was whom you were introducing. It doesn't sound at all like me as just a sort of casual cricketer. But anyway, thank you for gracious welcome. And I look forward to, to talking to you and Richard for the next little while. Well,
2: Lingard, I've been looking for ever since ever since studying your life. Um, I've been looking forward eagerly to talking to you. Particularly anxious to talk to you f- first about um, your grandfather, who's Walter Monckton, a big figure in um, British political and indeed constitutional life. He was adviser and the lawyer to Edward VIII during the abdication crisis. He was a minister under Winston Churchill and Anthony Eden, later chairman of the Midland Bank. I had a big role in um, my family being allowed to live in England, but that's um, another story. And... I
1: think we need to know this, Richard. I think if you're going to be talking to his grandson, you need well, to. Well,
2: indeed, Walter, Walter Mountain, among his um, many other achievements, was uh, president of the MCC. Um, my father was an emigrant from the United States in the 1950s. He was a victim, in fact, of the McCarthy era, and he came over to make, having lost his job, an American. Broadcasting, he came over to make a sort of second career in um, English commercial television, which he did, uh, which was legalized in 1954. But he had at one point; uh, he had great trouble getting what was called an alien's work permit at that time, and um, he was complaining about that. The chap who sort of introduced him to England, who was a broadcaster himself, but apart from that, was also the son of C. B. Fry, the famous cricketer. And he was complaining about um, his bureaucratic problems. And um, and our friend said, oh, for goodness sake, look, Walter Moncton, the Minister of Labour, is um, the next president of the MCC. I'll have a word with him in the long room. And um, sure enough, he did, and... Um, Uh, Your grandfather, Lingard, just signed a chip saying, you know, give this man uh, an alien's work permit. And um, our life uh, was changed permanently and we never looked back. And look
0: what he's responsible for. (laughs) Well, he's got a
2: lot, yes. Um, Unintended consequences. (laughs) So it's
1: irresponsible quite directly, funnily enough, for uh, this interview now. In a way, yep, (laughs) Yes. Um, I might
2: have, uh, um <laughs> cricket's loss might have been baseball's loss instead. I might have st- had to stay on in the United States or go back to the United States and become a baseball devotee instead of a cricketing one. But, um, Lingard, um, do you have any memories of um, your grandfather,
0: Walter Monckton? I do, but it's it, one of the great regrets of my life that I never really spoke to him about anything substantial. Um, when I was a schoolboy uh, in England, in Hampshire, when we had a free day... Very occasionally, I would take the train up to London, take lunch with my grandfather and his second wife. And I have happy memories of it. Pleasant day out. Very good company, he was. And at the end of it, he he would do the dutiful thing. I can't remember what the going rate for grandfathers was. It was either 10 shillings or a pound. And back I went after a happy day. But, of course, in retrospect, I would like to have asked him so much more, which I never did. Mm. Uh, but he did. He uh, he he drove the king and Mrs Simpson to Dover on that last day after the abdication. They dined together, and then my grandfather put them on the boat to France. Gosh,
1: that is a piece of. funnily enough, my uh, I sorry, a bit of my own family history. My my great uncle David was the signals officer on that ship. Oh, and we still have in the family possession the original of the telegram, I think, which he sent to the the king. Uh, but perhaps I'll, my great-uncle shook hands with your, your grandfather. But your grandfather played in one of the most remarkable matches of cricket in history. Fowler's <laughs> that match.
0: That was 1910. And the public was rather absorbed with the ascension to the throne of King George V. Dr Crippen was being hanged for the probable ex- uh, murder of his second wife. The Lord's Prayer was being punctuated. All these things the public were concerned with. And suddenly, for a couple of days, the cricket-loving public were entranced by the two-day Eaton Harrow match. Um, Bob Fowler lived very near where I am now, in County Meath, a little village called Enfield. And a wonderful Australian uh, cricketing journalist Gideon Haig recalls that he went to his prep school when he was a young boy and he'd come home to Ireland and he was so absorbed with the game of cricket that he would mark out a spot and spend much of the day bowling balls. There was uh, no rope or netting. And so he employed his footman to retrieve the ball all day long. (laughs) I was similarly absorbed about 50 years later when I was sent to my prep school. And I used to come home and practice hitting the ball all day long, but unfortunately I didn't have a footman had to retrieve the ball myself. But my grandfather, Walter, as you were speaking, he was playing in a Fowler's match and Harrow won the toss and made a respectable 232. Uh, Grandpa contributed 20 and Fowler bowed 37 overs and took 4 for 90. They were all out around 5 o'clock, I think, in the evening. It was already getting quite dark, and by close of play, Eaton had lost 5 wickets, I think, for for not very many, and the collapse continued the next morning. They were all out for 67. Harrow enforced the follow-on, and this time Eaton did a bit better, and they got to 214, of which Fowler made 64. Nevertheless, when he was out, they'd only just crept ahead, causing Harrow to bat again. When the ninth wicket fell, the tenth wicket put on 50 runs, and they set Harrow the minuscule target of 55 runs. However, that was more than enough. They bowled out Harrow for 45, of which Fowler took 823. He's an off spinner, and the wicket was vicious, apparently. Later, sadly, uh, well, he, he led a distinguished uh, military career, earned the military cross, uh, but he died of leukaemia at the age of 34. Mm.
1: This is this is uh, Fowler
0: himself, is it, who died? I Absolutely, yes. Yeah, Paul, he, um,
1: he uh, of course, many of the players, I mean, Fowler's match, if you think of the timing of the match, m- most of those young men would have served on the Western Front. And yes. I think well, many yeah. of them died, didn't they? I mean, it's quite yes. a sort of evocative
0: to reflect on that. I should have mentioned that in Eaton's first innings of '67, Harold Alexander, the subsequent Earl Alexander of Tunis, he took three for seven with his googlies.
2: Mm. Googlies is still a very underhand, very um, new and slightly underhand sort of delivery. Were then, weren't they? I was <laughs> <Rather laughs> surprised to think of a straightforward sort of military man, future military man, bowling googlies. Mm.
0: He batted at number eleven.
1: Lord Alexander, of course, was was a great cricket lover, and he I think he succeeded uh, your grandfather as president of the MCC, yes. which he was a magisterially uh, great president of the MCC. When the DB Cars A-team, uh, a- MCC A-team, went to Pakistan in 1956, uh, Alexander did something which is quite unusual. He, he travelled up with them by train to Liverpool, where they got on the boat, and he... Uh, Gave them great deal of personal instruction about how to conduct themselves in, in, in on a tour abroad. Particularly, I mean, this is very relevant because Alexander, Field Marshal Alexander had served on the uh, Northwest Frontier in the nineteen thirties, and, and he knew about the del- cultural, you know, delicacies, uh, the, the tendency of English people abroad to be very boorish, and and he, he and he was c- clearly concerned. And then, when of course the Great Peshawar Test. Calamity took place when uh, DB Cars team kidnapped a a Pakistani umpire, Idris Beg, and uh, took him back to their hotel and drenched him in water, and it caused an international incident and very nearly caused the tour to be cancelled. Again, Alexander's sensitivity, his realization that something terrible had had happened, uh, meant that he 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 immediately forced apologies and offered to end the tour and. He just about, he saved the day. He's he, So in so many different ways, he was a very, his cricketing career starts at Fowler's Match and ends uh, saving a, an MCC tour in
0: 1956.
2: Both he and, and your grandfather were famous uh, for their charm and diplomacy, weren't they? Um, because, yes. Uh, Walter Monckton was one of the figures who was trusted by everybody in the abdication crisis, wasn't he? I think
0: that's right, that's true he was he was also the advisor to the nizam of hyderabad for for a number of years
2: My goodness the richest man in the world by yeah, repute he was, hope,
0: indeed number one at the time yes I I hope, appropriately
2: i hope some of the the Nisam's wealth um, <laughs> came to him
1: i'm sure that walter Monckton had too much integrity for that to
2: uh... yeah. <laughs> not in the right way but i'm sure he he earned um if he advised the nizam i'm sure he um, earned a, a a very decent crust for it. Um, <laughs> yeah, this, your mother was Walter Moncton's daughter, uh, Lingard, and um, she had a, a, a very remarkable career in, in her own right, which I think began as a, as a teenager during the abdication crisis. She sort of ran confidential messages, didn't she?
0: Yes, well, my grandfather employed her uh, as his secretary because he knew that he could trust her, and they used to have lunch at Fort Belvedere, with the King and sometimes uh, Churchill and uh, Mrs. Simpson. And my mother always had a rather soft spot for Mrs. Simpson, Uh, not really politically, I think, but because she was always kind to my mother. My mother would would have been 17 at the time. And when the gentleman would have been drinking wine at lunch, Mrs. Simpson always produced two small bottles of ginger beer at my mother's place because she knew that it was a great favourite of hers. (laughs) And then later she became, um, she founded the Central Medial Clinic in Dublin for the aftercare of uh, poliomyelitis victims. And that became, uh, well, and and, and still is, it's a very significant institution in Dublin now. She founded that in 1951, the time of the great polio scare around the country, around the world, really. Mm.
1: Preparing for this uh, interview, I've been reading Charles, I think it was Charles Leissert's lovely obituary of your mum
0: yes yes yes
1: she became a senator didn't she in the uh, she did uh, doyle yeah
0: mm, mm, mm.
1: Mm. and uh, and though it was even at one stage some talk of her becoming president of ireland for foreshadowing mary robinson and so on
0: well my my brothers and i thought it might be rather attractive if we were living at anna san <laughs> uh, which is where the president abides in, in phoenix park but no that never came about but she was, initially, all the funding for the clinic was um, by knocking on doors of people and asking for money. And, and she was very hard to resist, but no Irish government for many years would, would give her any financing until Charlie Hohey uh, became a Taoiseach. And not only did he start to finance the clinic, but he actually accompanied my mother to America on a fundraising tour. He, he was a huge supporter. And... Charlie may have had his faults, as indeed we all do, but in that one regard, he he, um, certainly bestowed great benison upon the people of Ireland. And that comes
1: over from uh, Charles Lysett's obituary, isn't it? Her loyalty to to, to Charlie Hockey.
2: Yes. Since, Since we're recording this on July the 3rd, I can't resist saying a lovely thing that Wallace Simpson wrote the day after on Independence Day when she was visiting... Um, some rather grand American house, uh, celebrate Independence Day with um, Duke of Windsor, and she she writes in in The Visitor's Book, here on the 4th with my third. (laughs) 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 I think it's a very, you know, rather sweet thing to say. (laughs) But, um, um, Lingard, you didn't see very much of your parents um, in your early life, did you? Because uh, you were you were born in, in nineteen forty, and both um, your parents, uh, you know, were were heavily involved in war service of different
0: kinds, weren't they? It's true. I was hatched at, in Hatch Street in Dublin, <laughs> and very shortly after, my parents were both. Well, my father, my mother, was called up as a. As a as she was then a British subject, she sub- subsequently became a naturalised Irish woman.
1: Wasn't she advised by Winston Churchill when he, he, she met him during the abdication crisis that war was inevitable and to go and join the war, war office, which he duly did? That, the, the, that's what the obituary says.
0: Really, I, I can't recall that. Yeah, um, And my father, although he was an Irish citizen, having been educated in England, he felt it was his, his duty to join up. And so I spent the war years in England, a little place in Surrey, uh, Virginia Waters, with a nanny. And we moved around the country dodging the bombs. And sometimes we would see my parents at the weekend. But we, we stayed there until the end of the war, 1945, when the family, uh, when we came home. And then uh, uh, two two brothers arrived in, in the y- years after the war, 45, 47. Oh. They were both... They're both distinguished people in their own right. My brother, Tim, is a a fine artist, musician and philosopher. Um, He's somewhat, he's always been somewhat close to Buddhism, I think. My brother, Ham, was an Aer Lingus pilot, practical man, fine runner. In fact, I think he came fifth in the Chicago Marathon once. Um, So we remain very close, we three brethren. Another key figure in my life was my grandmother, whom we called Marzi. That was Walter Monckton's first wife. Um, She was the daughter of Sir Thomas Collier Ferguson, who owned Item Moat in Kent. And she really was a, a rock for me, because every time I'd go from the age of eight till 18, I'd come across to England for schooling. And at the beginning of term, at the end of term, I generally spent a night with her. She she was a a beloved relative.
1: So your schooling, so you were sent away, having been kind of apart from your parents most of the war years because they were serving. Yes, they they promptly sent you away in time honoured fashion to boarding school. Did you at at the age of eight? That's right. Yeah. (laughs) Where did you go?
0: Well, I went to Ludgrove, which was run by a man called Alan Barber. And the connection was that he, my father, Basil, had been captain of the Oxford football team. And Alan was in that same team. And as a result of the friendship that engendered, I was sent to Ludgrove. And indeed, it remains a a private school. I think Alan's grandson is running it now. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was there that I developed my fondness for, for the game of cricket. And it was there some 70 years ago now that I first encountered the Nawab of Petordi, Tiger, Mansur Ali Khan. And um, that particular occasion, we were playing against Lockers Park, where he was a pupil, and we had a great victory over them. Petordi already had a reputation, a pretty good reputation, but a good mate of mine, Jeremy Brown, uh, another Irish boy, he had a tremendous day, and he, he captured five wickets, including the prize crown of, of Pertori, uh, who didn't make more than, uh, I can't remember how many, maybe 30 or so. And I do remember that he was actually caught goulding bold brown. Uh, were you uh, behind
1: the stumps even then? No.
0: Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I think it was the simplest of possible catches, but nevertheless, there it is in the book. Had to be taken. Mm. And we were... Um, I mean, Jeremy was a great hero in the school for the next little while. And um, we all thought, well, he certainly deserves to be awarded his colours. And the tradition in those days was that colours were awarded by the headmaster who would come in during mealtimes and make the announcement and present a shirt or a cap or whatever game it was. On this occasion, the next day, lo and behold, in came the headmaster during tea. And he said, boys, in future you will call brown Altamont, the Earl of Altamont, and he swept out of the room. And we were somewhat aghast. We thought, well, Jeremy, he, he built frightfully well. I mean, line, length, you couldn't really fault it. But was it worthy of a no moment <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy, subsequently, um, further enhanced, when he, and he became the Earl of Slago on the death of his father. But that occasion was, of course, due to the death of his grandfather. <laughs>
2: Yeah, yes. you went. You went on, then, God, to join the Noirba Petordi at Winchester. Yes. Um, didn't you, um, where you resumed your career as a as a wicketkeeper batsman. But Petordi, of course, had a dazzling career at Winchester. What can you tell us about him? About him then, in that phase, because I think he was playing county cricket already as a school as a schoolboy.
0: Sixteen, he, he was playing for Sussex uh, with considerable success. He made a fifty in each innings of a match against, and here I'm absolutely not quite sure. It was either, either Surrey or, or Yorkshire, uh, but I do remember he made dual fifties. He was a charming fellow. He was, I don't know, he felt liberated in England, I think. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, he he certainly had an eye for the girls from quite <laughs> an early early age. Um, I have another couple of memories of him. One. Um, I hadn't met him for 40, 50 years until there was a, a function in White's in London. And um, we had dinner and we had a brief chat, but everyone wanted to talk to him, of course. But he he, he sort of dropped uh, as a line, you know, next time you're in Delhi, I drop in for dinner. <laughs> well, <laughs> by a strange coincidence, about three years later, I was invited to India by a former pupil of mine and uh, sub- my replacement as headmaster at Edford. And uh, also a very very good friend Dermot Dix.
1: lovely man, yeah,
0: yeah, and his wife Chandana Matur, who, who is Dr. Chandana Matur, um, who herself is Indian, uh, Indian, very come,
1: distinguished uh, lady,
0: yes, very yes. distinguished, comes yeah. from and they kindly bade me uh, spend Christmas with them, and um, lo and behold, there I was in Delhi, and so I rang uh, Tiger, and said, "Oh, we'll come and have dinner," and so we we all three of us we all went and had a spent a delightful evening. Uh, with uh, Tiger and his wife, Shamila Tagore, who was who a very distinguished uh, Bollywood actress. And uh, so that was the last time I actually saw him. But I have another memory of him. Um, and this was in the last year of his life. It was during the Indian tour of England in 2011. <laughs> and that was a time when England slaughtered India in four tests. They won by huge margins. the Cook
1: four. coming into his own, wasn't it, as I recall?
0: Yeah. the two England- In the third test the two English knights, Sir Andrew Strauss and um, Sir Alistair Cook, put on 286 for the first wicket, and significantly in that match, Owen Morgan, during his uh, test incarnation, he made 104 in that innings. Um, But anyway, anyway, the last time I actually saw Petordi, although only on screen, was after the fourth test, and uh, Petordi presented the trophy to Andrew Strauss. And I thought he looked not well. I, I thought to myself, well, is he just angry because India have done so badly? But very sadly, two months later, I, I heard that he had succumbed to lung disease. This was 2011. And so he he was just 70 years old, I think. He was... Before we leave
2: Winchester, Lingard, I must say that um, years later, in the late 1990s, my stepson used to play regularly against Winchester for King Edward VI School in Southampton. And he says they used to sledge him in Latin. <laughs> was this something that was done in your time? Uh, <laughs> or, uh, well, or was it, uh, well, is it something that's crept in later?
0: <laughs> no, I, I, um, certainly not in my time. And it's The idea of sledging would have certainly been frowned upon by Hubert Doggett, who was oh, a ah, yes. coach at Sussex, and he played a couple of tests for England. And dear old George Cox um, of Sussex, he was... Oh, a fine county cricketer for many, many years. And at Winchester, he, he, apart from being coach, he ran the sports shop where you could go and buy a football or a cricket bat or a, a willow cane for beating the, the inferiors. <laughs> he had a lovely, um, beautiful golden retriever, which was called Cox's Orange Pippin.
1: <laughs> for those listeners who might not know, sledging is hurling abuse or throwing abuse at uh, other players on a cricket pitch normally had a batsman by the fielding side and we might come on to that later as we talk about Lingard's time in Australia because it's particularly notorious in that part of the world.
2: Lingard you're a wicketkeeper uh, from an early age and um, you've been keeping wicket on off um, for what I think in eight, eight different decades. Let's talk about wicket-keeping generally, in, um, if we may, for a little while. In the 1950s and 60s, in your early life, um, teens still had specialist wicket-keepers then, didn't they? They yeah. weren't expected to bat very much, but they were expected to be superb behind the stumps and particularly to take stumpings you know, and to stand up even to medium pace bowlers. And I think the last English example of a specialist wicket-keeper with a long career was was Bob Taylor. And around the same time in that period, Pakistan had was in Barry. He was essentially a you know, a really good wicketkeeper. And I just wondered if you're sad that that kind of wicketkeeper has disappeared, especially in one-day cricket.
0: It's very sad um, because most test-playing nations now, they, they select their wicketkeeper purely on, on the strength of his batting, and um, wicketkeeping rather secondary. I suppose they're all expected. And they stand back and uh, they, they perform like good goalkeepers. Um, but there are exceptions, um, and right up to the modern time. I mean, I have a f- few favourite wicket keepers. When I was a boy, Godfrey Evans of Kent in England was my great hero, and contemporary of, of his was Arthur McIntyre of Surrey,
2: mm-hmm.
0: who was a tremendous uh, keeper too. Unfortunately, he didn't have a lot of test cricket because he coincided with, with Evans, but I remember watching him playing... For- Milhouse and Arkell. millhouse what I
1: mean is, what the great misfortune which Millhouse, the greatest steeplechaser of the age until Markle turned up.
0: Like Stuart McGill and over uh, the, the um, Warn era. Indeed. Yeah. Yes, same thing. Um, mm. I remember watching Arthur McIntyre keeping to Alec Bedser, standing up to him. Um, I actually kept wicket to Alec Bedser on two occasions, which was a wonderful experience.
1: Well, tell us about that. Uh, Gosh, too,
0: yeah. <laughs> my other great wicket keeping heroes was Bob Taylor, whom you mentioned, Ian Healy. Who was a magician behind the stumps to warn Sarah Taylor? Uh, for at one stage, for a few years, she was perhaps the very best keeper in the world. Tell us um, a bit more about her. Yeah. She stood stood up to just about everything because women don't bowl fast, and so there was nothing more than I suppose mid one hundred and twenty k's. But she came and played for a season in Sydney District Cricket, and <clears throat> she played there in, in the men's team. Uh, and people were astonished um, at, at her brilliance. When I was at Ludgrove, um, there was a, a young chap three years younger than I. And I was obviously keeping in the first 11 and he was keeping in the Colts. And I remember thinking, gosh, this little chap looks terrific. And so he was. He, it was a chap called Mike Griffith. Mm. He was the son Captain of Sussex. Of, yeah. Captain of Sussex, yes.
2: as he became. Yeah.
0: Of S.C. Griffith, Billy Griffith who played for England, um, Sussex, of course, and England um, in, the, in the, would have been just the early post-war era. Mike was christened Mike after his godfather's novel. His godfather was P.G. Woodhouse. Mm, I do to
2: about that. He
0: wrote a, a charming cricketing novel called Mike about, because uh, Woodhouse always loved his social cricket. And this was about a, a brilliant schoolboy cricketer. And so Billy Griffith christened his son, Mike, and he went on to Marlborough from Ludgrove and a very good career. As you say, he played for Captain Sussex. Uh, but he, he was just at a very uh, young age. He was one whom I thought was tremendously good. Uh, another one I admire hugely is Tim Payne, the current Australian captain. I'm
1: glad to hear that because he gets a lot of abuse or criticism, doesn't he, Tim Payne?
0: Oh, it's also wrong. I mean, he's restored the honour of, of Australian cricket. And he would have been. He joined the team, I think, the same year as uh, Steve Waugh, about 2010. And he would have been the greatest, one of the finest ever. But he, he had fingers that kept being broken. And he'd obviously given up any thought of playing test cricket again. Suddenly, this a dreadful thing happened in, in Cape Town. The um, sandpapering the ball. And they called him in as a sort of senior citizen, and I think he's done a wonderful job. He had one bad day against India, but otherwise he's true. It's one of my pet noirs that most teams they select the captain on the basis of his being the best batsman in the team. Now, wild earth, there should be a correlation between extreme skill with the bat and cerebral powers of leadership. I do not know. Now, it can overlap, of course. I mean, you think of someone like Cain and Richard, uh, Williamson, uh, Vera Curley, both fine captains as well as fine batsmen. But it's not inevitable. Um, now, if, if I can drop a
1: name, I, I was hmm. discussing this of Imran Khan only the other day, <laughs> and uh, Imran Khan felt very strongly that um, actually it was a bad idea normally to have a batsman because the key decisions which captains have to make involve bowlers, who to put on. And he says only a bowler can really understand that. So Imran Mm. Khan said he couldn't understand why teams kept on putting batsmen. They should put bowlers. And he argued it with his customary uh, incisive force. Mm. And I I was actually talking about, Richard and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, about why, I mean, Root is a superlative batsman. He's half the batsman he was as England captain. Mm. and, And also not a particularly good captain um and um in fact i would i i would bring back at this stage ian morgan as captain and in that wise man capacity like Payne came back and has made a success of because he clearly has the ability to motivate and lead men
0: he does um he's it's remarkable really that an irishman could captain england It's, it's a great tribute to him and and to the wisdom of the English selectors. I don't agree with you, actually, uh, that he should come back as captain of the test team. I think he would not be a good enough batsman in that format any longer. And nowadays, selectors tend to select 11 people and then uh, inflict one of them with with the the burden of captaincy. Whereas in former times, of course, you would select 10 players and then... um, was a, and then a captain and it could be someone like Mike Brearley, who would have been only marginally good enough as a batsman. Um, I think there's another reason, too. I think it's a traditional reason why, cap, why, why captains tend to be batsmen. And it's a sort of sociological thing. In former times, the gentleman batted and the uh, lower orders delivered the ball to them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe that hasn't completely disappeared. It was still present in the Lords
2: and Commons cricket team when I first started playing for it. <laughs> the, the MPs and the peers were the amateur batsmen and the hired help, like me, were the ah. bowlers and the outfielders. Yep. <laughs> Lincard, um many sources have told us um, that you might have become an international class wicketkeeper, but uh, you've done many things, other things in life besides cricket. After Winchester, you got a degree from um, Trinity College Dublin. You... Um, your profile says you were engaged in mining in Australia, programming early computers, marketing Irish jewellery. You were involved in the family fertilizer firm, which is one of the leading concerns in, um, uh, in Ireland. Um, but above all, and this is really quite fascinating, you were a Formula 5000 racing driver. Uh, for our non-motor-loving listeners, listeners what exactly does that mean, Formula 5000?
0: Um, Well, I I was always a bit of a a petrol head and um, started racing sports cars from a young age, from in the 1950s. But it wasn't until I was 30, which of course is much too old, that we got international backing uh, to to join the Formula 5000 circuit. Formula 5000 at the time was, I suppose, the second level what would correspond to Formula 2 these days. Our equipment was... um, nth hand, where n was a fairly significant number, and um, we used to buy pistons second hand from McLaren. And it was a footbound mouth thing. But the one regret I have is that I never committed myself to a year as a full-time racing driver. So I was holding down a job in Dublin, flying out on a Friday night, and the works teams would have been at the circuit from Wednesday onwards, getting their gear ratios, tyre compounds, and such things sorted out. I'd have my hours practice on Saturday, uh, do the race on Sunday and fly home and uh, or else in the dawn flight on Monday morning straight into the classroom. I was never very successful. I won a few races in Northern Ireland. Uh, My best club result in Formula 5000 was a fourth place at Browns Hatch and my best international result was eighth Monza. Um, It was tremendously- it's tremendous fun it was my it's always been my favorite sport. Cricket comes a good second and there's some sort of sublime satisfaction in driving a fast car around a corner such that you only marginally remain on the tr- on the road
2: mm.
0: <laughs> It's a bit like
1: winston churchill said this there's no there's no feeling of uh, as, as amazing he like, he said it more elegantly than that of being shot at and then missing. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it reminds me of Keith Miller, I think, who was asked if he was terrified facing West Indians. He said, There's no fear like being shot up the ass by a German p- pilot because he had quite a, a distinguished. Um, Having a Measure
1: up your ass, I think, was the phrase he used.
0: <laughs> yeah, he was, in the, he was a
2: pilot in World War II. Um You competed, I think, against Jackie Stewart and Graham Hill. Um,
0: and, and Jochen Rindt, who was well, a great mm. hero of mine. He was, he was, and I hope will remain, the only posthumous world champion. That was at the Ulton Park Gold Cup. And uh, I, never, I never knew Jackie Stewart very well, or and, and, and Graham Hill, really. Very dapper was Graham Hill. So, mm. uh, but Jochen was great fun. I, I got to know him a little bit.
2: Can you remember your fastest lap speed, just to put it into a kind of modern context?
0: The answer no. is no. It's just like I, I can't remember my best cricket scores or anything. Mm. Either. I'm, I'm, I, I just go out and enjoy the day and, and that's it. But I know the highest speed, I suppose, would have been you know, at Monza. Um, in one of the practice sessions, I, I took off the rear wing. And that gave us almost 20 miles an hour extra speed. <laughs> but it was so hairy on these fast bends. The thing was all over the place and we were about four seconds slower. Uh, but we had been doing just over 190 miles an hour wow which is wow. quite you know fairly
1: rapid mm. cricket and um horse racing is a well-known combination cricket and motor racing not so and actually i remember giles clark when he was chairman of the EB- ecb and was absolutely furious that the bbc refused to bid for the test match cricket rights and said Oh yes yes nobody goes most and they went for Formula One instead. He said nobody goes Formula One plays Formula One at weekends. And he said, and it's quite a powerful re- remark. I agreed with him. But uh, tell us, are there, is there are there any affinities between motor racing and cricket?
0: I suppose you need um, fairly sharp reflexes. <laughs> um, certainly. I mean, I, I was thinking about trigger factors for for keeping wicked, particularly. I mean, obviously, general fitness. The game of squash, I think, it correlates closely. Probably be yoga.
1: Uh, Sorry, why yoga or squash?
0: Flexibility, actually. flexibility, gymnastics, I think. I mean, I remember at my prep school, <laughs> one of the masters there referred to me as the the India rubber man. <laughs> I
1: remember exactly what I thought of you when I met you for the first time and encountered you behind the wicket, crouching as Godfrey <laughs> Graham came into bowl. It was like having an octopus behind the stumps, actually.
0: Well, <laughs> when I played my last game at the age uh, of... Full season club cricket at the age of seventy-eight in Australia. I, I was somewhat less flexible, one has to say, uh, but still, I, I reckoned I had the best sort. Of, I have the best eighty odd year old knees in Christendom. Hmm. Uh, although seventy-eight
1: was your last full season as a club cricketer, Lingard. Yeah.
0: yeah. Wow.
2: As a wicker keeper, which I think is the most strenuous job <laughs> on, uh, you know, in uh, on the field in any team.
0: Uh, one game I had would have been five years ago, if not six. I'd have still been in my mid-70s. It was 39 degrees. I had to keep for 72 overs, while the opposition made just more than 400. <laughs> we came second in that game.
1: I remember, I think we last played against each other. I think it was either Headfoot or Mount Juliet about mm. four years ago, and you were behind the stumps. Mm. And quite uh, form- quite terrifying then, night. What a, yes it is very by the a lot of people uh, listening to this who will find this tremendously encouraging I mean there you are aged 78 still playing high grade cricket in a very demanding role but you're a model for a lot of us
0: well I wouldn't say high grade um, when, when I played yeah it was three years ago now
1: Club cricket in Australia is uh, is always quite tough oh yeah it's,
0: it's, it's tremendous I really enjoyed. It.
1: When you were playing
2: club cricket in Australia then you must have discovered a very different cricket culture from uh, your earlier one, particularly did you were you ever sledged
0: <laughs> uh, Richard, um, what a silly question
2: oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the uh, question this I used to say in Latin question expecting the answer yes
0: <laughs> non question I think yeah. Latin, uh, yes. mm. um. I first played my cricket cricket in Australia in 1963. Uh, and I played a chap called um, Robert Holland. He was a lovely young man. Um, he, he was about 17, I was 23, I suppose. He was in our club and he was a leg spin bowler. Yes, right. Terrific. And I moved on in life as one does. And the next I heard of him, or actually saw him on the Irish television, he was in the Ashes team for Australia. And uh, he was, by then he was known as Bob Holland, of course, or Dutchie Holland. And um, he, the first time I went back to Australia in 2001, I made a point of tracking him down in Newcastle, New South Wales. And I had dinner with him and his wife. And his story is fascinating. Up Lake Macquarie, where I was was living and playing, is slightly remote from the New South Wales hierarchy in Sydney. And um, Robert Holland he didn't get his first first class game until he was 32 years old and he joined the australian team at the age of 38 Gosh, and he lovely. played for two years um, during which time he took 10 wickets in a match against uh, against uh, with the west indies and he features on and the, the great hon- west indies team with it that yes yeah. and he features on the honours board at lords for five wickets against england hmm.
1: Was that the 64 tour that it would have been? Or the, it would have been, I think, because I don't remember him in the 68 tour. Mm. So he, he succeeds Beno, doesn't he, really, as Aussie leg, leg spinner, I take it. Succeeds. Bob Holland would have succeeded Beno, more or less. Oh, I he? see. Come, come.
0: Ah, well, there might have been someone in between. Yeah. But yes, yeah. I mean, I remember one of the finest catches I ever saw was R- 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 Rishi Beno uh, in the gully, and I think it was Colin Cowdery. Um, absolutely magnificent catch at full length. Um, sadly, though, Bob Holland, um, he, he died a few years ago. He was a few, two years before he died. He was tending the pitch at a place called Awaba, where I used to play all those years ago. And uh, he was a sort of senior figure in the club by then. I think he played the odd game for the third eleven. He was six years younger than I, and he, he was tending the, the pitch one evening with his wife and some hooligans, hoons as they're called in Australia, came onto the pitch driving, driving their car around and Robert went and remonstrated with them and they beat him and his wife up, hospitalised yes. the two of them, It was the most horrific thing. Terrible. Um, and anyway, he recovered from that. It was not life-threatening, but uh, sadly he, he contracted cancer a couple of years later and, and, and died. He was, a, he was a lovely fellow. Uh, just, just for the
2: re- just for the record, his his actual test career was rather later than we we thought earlier. He had yeah, I, I eleven think. eleven test matches from nineteen eighty four to nineteen
0: eighty five. Yeah, yeah, that's more like it. Yeah, um, I knew him in the early sixties, and you see, and he was a young he was a boy then. He was seventeen.
2: Yes, he would. Have, and looking at his date, looking at his date of birth, he was indeed
1: thirty eight when he played his first test that's match.
0: That's correct. It's an amazing story, this isn't it? it. it he had Thirty-eight
1: good... when he played his yep. first
0: Test match. Yep. Yeah. He also had a he had an international record too, which he shared with Ajayja, Indian batsman, five consecutive ducks in Test cricket. <laughs> yes, his batting average, his Test
2: batting average, is three point one eight. Is it as high as that? Hmm. <laughs> yes, he, uh, he had a top <laughs> score of ten. He got into double figures once. Oh well, yes, <laughs> yeah. so, uh, mm-hmm. and. Um, but uh, his, his bowling, he, t- take, he took 34 wickets in his 11 test matches And mm-hmm. twice, as I think you said, Lindgaard Twice he took 10 wickets in a match Twice, did he, yes, yes. You know, according to well, what,
0: what did his wickets cost him? Uh, they did
2: cost him quite a bit um, 39 each Yeah, yeah
0: Well, that was par for spinners in that in the, in the, Except for Jim Laker or somebody hmm. yeah.
1: Embury averaged 40, for instance, so it's nothing sort of too disgraceful. It
2: was the end, it was, of course, um, uncovered wickets he would have bowled on in those days.
0: I suppose a term beginning with the sixth letter of the alphabet is more frequently employed there than than perhaps elsewhere. But Mm. I mean, in my dotage, too, I never received anything worse than let's send granddad back to the hutch, you know, that sort Mm. of thing. Mm. I mean, my view on staging is if somebody like Glenn McGrath bells something which rises to the throat of the batsman and utters something slightly indelicate, well, maybe there's a heightening of drama. On the other hand, when a pot-bellied third-grade player performs Mm. like that, when he can scarcely cause the ball to reach the other end, it really is rather risible. And I mean, I love playing cricket in Australia, and of course, if you call someone a bastard, that's a term of endearment. Mm. Uh, and uh, no, I, uh, there were some silly episodes. It's most, you know, when I was when I teach children, I mean, the first thing I tell them is that. Um, the umpire is always right even when he's palpably wrong and if you adhere to that you won't go too far wrong it's it's adults who behave badly sometimes and i I don't actually think that australian cricketers behave more badly than others i always found it a joy playing there anyway
1: there is a school of so tell us the episode a few years ago which nearly caused steve smith's downfall wasn't there is a thesis that this was a materialization, a manifestation of a culture which has just got too aggressive.
0: Yes, I think there's something in that. Hmm. I think that's certainly true. The Australians made a point of being disagreeable at that time and I I think Tim Payne has gone a long way to to restore that. Uh, And you can still be aggressive and and, um, try to do everything you can to win and yet uh, stick somewhere within the spirit of cricket.
2: Lingard, uh, we've uh, just received the news that the ECB have cleared uh, Ollie Robinson to um, resume his international career. And just wondered if you had any thoughts on, um, on that matter.
0: Everyone makes mistakes when they're young. It's just a matter of where you draw the line. I mean, he wasn't a babe in arms when he made these unfortunate remarks. He was 18, I think, wasn't he? Yes. Uh, and he should not have been making them then. On the other hand, should you penalise him and, and, until he's in his grave? I don't think so. I, I wouldn't criticise his reinstatement, but my goodness, if he puts a foot out of line again, they should clover him.
2: Well, I think that may have been a bit of the motive uh, for... Um... Suspending him in the first place, it may have been intended to have a bit of an interorum effect, not just on him, but on hmm. you know, on
0: future players. You
1: know, this, Pour um, encourager les autres.
0: Sort of, yeah. yeah. Mm. But the world has changed, hasn't it? I mean, there are certain things which one could have said without offending in the 1960s, which are completely beyond the pale nowadays, and, and rightly so.
2: There's also, as we've been saying, we said in an earlier programme, there's now the fact that... Um, isn't it, Lindo? Because of because so many of these things get committed to social media. Yes, exactly. um, where, uh, Things that you know would have been forgotten and private um, of, uh, uh, now become permanent uh, and stay on the player's record forever. Just
0: off the cuff remarks with them amongst mates. Mm. You know, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure most most of us have uttered indelicacies, which we subsequently would regret, but fortunately they, they weren't transmitted to the world at large. i find it
1: very hard to believe actually lingard that you've ever uttered an indelicacy (laughs) um uh, unfortunately we've i mean i I, we've only got up to in our conversations to the 1970s and our time has run out would you mind uh we made the same request of charles lyset when he came on your compatriot um obviously you've got the gift of the uh the blarney um as Charles certainly does he's uh, would you mind coming back again could we borrow another hour and a bit of your time
0: <laughs> well it would be a privilege honestly yeah thank you i just hope i'm not pouring the pants off everybody He's certainly not so, doing that
2: no no chance mm.
0: uh well
1: we'll we'll be, be we'll be making arrangements to bring uh, bring you back for a, a a second a second innings behind the stumps <laughs> and in the meantime it's Goodbye for me, Peter O'Bourne, in a, a – it's getting a bit colder here in Wiltshire. Oh, well, it's goodbye for me, Richard Heller, and after a brief
2: interlude of sunshine, while we were speaking, it's become blustery and rather dark again.
0: Goodbye, and thank you very much. <laughs>